The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, and they, we need your help. Please go to newactivist.is slash IJM and put your name on the line. It takes about 10 seconds and is extremely easy. Newactivist.is IJM. Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a privilege to be with you today. I am really excited about this show because you get to hear from, and I got to be in conversation with my friend and colleague, Sharon Kohn-Wu. As is often the case working at IJM, you get to know people and everybody's just wonderful and approachable and kind. And then you start to hear (laughs) their resume and you're like, whoa, you are the smartest person I have ever been around. People don't say that about working with me, but I say that about Sharon. She has an extensive and impressive career as a lawyer, which started at Harvard Law. She is the Senior Vice President of Justice System Transformation, which really means that her job is to ensure that IJM is achieving its goals of securing justice and protection for the oppressed through the transformation of public justice systems. If that doesn't make sense to you, it's okay. I didn't get it for a while either. For now, we'll just say this. When I talk about ending slavery in our lifetime, You should know that one of the chief architects of the model by which that is happening is Sharon Kohn-Wu. She is our guest on the show this week, and I can't wait for you to learn from her. I need to say something about this show. We are going to get deep into the work of IJM. We don't talk about IJM a ton on the show because there's a lot of great organizations and people and causes to talk about, but I figured if we're going to spend a whole podcast talking about IJM, let's go there, which means that we are going to look at both sides of the IJM coin. Part of it is going to be really hard to hear, and there's going to be some difficult information, but there's also going to be a lot that is extremely hopeful because that is the nature of what we are doing. That is the nature of what Sharon is doing. So trigger warning, this is not going to be a show that is going to be safe for kids to listen to. And also, if sexual violence is at all a unique trigger for you, I totally understand if you sit this one out. We will, of course, be back next week. That being said, here is my conversation with Sharon Kohn-Wu. Your IJM bio states, and I want to read it word for word, her direct efforts have resulted in the release of children in the Philippines, Thailand, India, the Ivory Coast, and Cambodia, and the teams she led have brought rescue to thousands of children, women, and men around the world. (laughs) I'm saying this and you're kind of, uh, you're recoiling a little bit because you're not the kind of person that would take a bow. It's not what IJM does, but can you explain how that statement is, is, (laughs) is true? It's been an extraordinary privilege um, to have been with the organization for now 15 years. Uh, and I was very, very privileged in the early years to um, travel with teams and to work with our local teams uh, directly on cases um, and therefore to have um, to have interacted and had some small part in um, the rescue of uh, children in a number of different places and uh, then to, over the years, have uh, different leadership responsibilities um, where our teams in the field have mm. done just extraordinary things. So you've actually been like on 
operations? Like you've been with teams and you've been a part of watching this in the field? Yes. Do you remember the first time that you were on one and can you talk about it? Uh, The first time I met a child who was a victim of commercial sexual exploitation was in Cote d'Ivoire back Mm -hmm. in... um, Which I mistakenly called the Ivory Coast. uh, Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire in 2001. Um, And uh, these girls were Nigerian and they had been trafficked by uh, a family friend and relative from um, Nigeria to Cote d'Ivoire with the promise of uh, a job in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were uh, women from their home state in Nigeria who had gone to Italy through Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and when they arrived in Cote d'Ivoire, um, they were told that there was no money for them to go home. There was no way they could go to uh, Italy, but that they had to um, be abused by men in order to earn enough money to either go home or to go to Italy. Mm-hmm. Because they were uh, not French speakers, um, and couldn't talk to people, uh, in the city of Abidjan and couldn't find a way home or out. They could do nothing, um, but be, uh, exploited. The one girl was 14, the other girl was 15. And so, um, one of the investigators, uh, at IJM at the time, um, interacted, uh, with them to gather some information, uh, from them. And then, um, they came to a room where they thought they were going to be uh, exploited, and instead um, I was talking to them, uh, as was the investigator. And that interaction, I will tell you, um, I remember virtually every detail because the first time you meet uh, a child who is um, suffering in quite this unique way and um, a victim of trauma in this um, particularly brutal way, uh, it sticks with you. You don't forget it. I've met many many, many, many children over the years. Um, I'll never forget the first two girls I met. Going back to 2001, did it change something in you to, to, to put a face to the, to the work? I think I'd been at iGEM for five weeks or something. So it wasn't that I five had weeks. a strong notion another way, maybe three weeks. I don't remember. It was the first deployment I had. First trip I'd gone on with IJM, I was there um, I think senior counsel for trafficking at the time. And it was the first place I went on a sort of multi-country uh, visit uh, to look at the issue of trafficking. So yes, I would say it was quite formative um, in my understanding of um, of both the pain and the hope. I would say we saw some pretty amazing things over the next several days. You can read about something and have an apprehension. I had a limited apprehension of the relevant, relevant statutes of, uh, some, some stories and some statistics from secondary sources that I had looked at, but there actually, uh, is something highly clarifying about having a conversation, um, with a person who has suffered that kind of violence. Um, both what, what the, uh, sort of pain and horror of it is, but also what the possibilities are, um, that made, uh, I had no doubt that this is, uh, the calling that I was, I wanted to pursue, but it, it is very clarifying, right? Because what, what you see is that the violence is brutal and damaging. And then what you also see is that it can be stopped. And over time we've learned it can be prevented in the sense that you can actually deter other people from committing that crime. And so that progression or that, that experience I've had over the last, um, last many years has confirmed 
both those initial sensations, but also I think kind of matured them over time. One of the folklore stories that we always hear around here is that like, did you know Sharon spent a night in jail or (laughs) again, you're rolling your eyes. I know know you don't love this, but I, but why, how did that happen? Or can you talk about it? Yes, and that didn't actually, you know, like, again, so this is lore and this is sort of what what (laughs) is, right? Right. Um, There was a situation where we had been trying to, um, there there were these girls in a particularly brutal brothel, and uh, I actually think they're all horrible, but you'll imagine that there's a spectrum of the level of sort of attendant violence in them, and this was a particularly um, terrible brothel, and... Although the um, initial raid had been unsuccessful, the girls that had been identified in the investigation ultimately were rescued or were left somewhere and were um, and the police had them. But three of the girls were uh, not citizens of that country, right? So they mm. um, they had been trafficked into that country by traffickers. Um, and then they were told they owed the money to the brothel keeper for the, amount that the brothel keeper had paid the trafficker for them, mm-hmm. right? And so then they were working. Um, one of them had a, uh, this is just by way background, but one of them had a, uh, on the wall, um, she kept a list of the customers she had been with, how much she owed and tried to, against that false debt that she was told she owed in order to get out of that place, right? No way. And, oh yeah, because I walked around the brothel with them after the brothel was closed after the operation. And that was a, and then I walked, uh, went into the brothel with them to get their things, and you could see this um, this girl. I had the girl walk me through what the what those numbers and signs were because she felt as she kept a public representation of how much money she owed that the brothel keeper couldn't lie and cheat her in the end. But those things are not true, right? Because the brothel keeper adds regular cost against those things, charges them for food, cheats them. Uh, so uh, anyway, so the three of the girls have been trafficked from somewhere else. So um, the authorities um, detained them on immigration violations, mm-hmm. even though they had been trafficking victims. And so I was uh, concerned about them being held in jail, but we couldn't get them out. Um, and it was um, even though they were in their own cell, there were men in other cells. And I knew that um, they – the somebody had slipped the girls a note. So the men seemed to know that the girls had come out of a brothel. So I was worried about their safety. Um, so I, um, I just sort of pulled up a chair, um, and figured I would stay. So the, um, the head of the jail came to escort me out and I just, um, fortunately didn't speak the language. And so, um, didn't, uh, understand that he wanted me to leave. And, uh, and in the end he sort of, um, stopped insisting that I leave and allowed me to, to stay because he wasn't quite sure what was going on. But you, did you know he was asking you to leave? I did know he was asking yeah, me to leave. Know, it wasn't right. sort of a complicated <laughs> right, scenario. Right, we were yeah. all, but he, he, in the end we brought food to the jailers and, um, so I did stay for there for the while. I couldn't talk to the girls either because I didn't speak the language that they spoke and they didn't speak English. So uh, again, we don't do things like this anymore right, either. Right. So we would have had a social worker who spoke uh, their language right. uh, talking to them. But I was just trying to to comfort them and to mostly to communicate, which I think is a lot of what, uh, or at least a piece of what we're asked to do in this world is like to communicate to 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 these girls who were terribly frightened. They had been in an ex- 
a terrible situation. Uh, and now they were in a pretty bad situation and they had no way of knowing what the next situation mm -hmm. would be. It's just, we're called to like actually be with people in that mess and try to convey to them that we see them, that they matter and that we aren't leaving. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I think those are the things you're probably most afraid of when you're in situations where you yeah. don't know what's happening and you don't know what to do. So in the end, though, the um, and this is where the lore comes in. I didn't actually sleep on a mat in the jail or anything. The jailer came around, and he was very nice. And even though we couldn't speak the same language, he took me all around the jail and showed me the room he was going to put the girls in for the night, which was not this open cell. And he showed me the key to the, to the room, and he showed me where he was going to keep it on his body. And he assured me uh, in lots of um, sign language. We were perfectly able to communicate well with each other <laughs> in the end, of course, um, that the girls were very safe and that it was on him. He gave me his word, uh, which I believed. Um, and they were fine. And they were released the next day. I don't want to be exploitive, but I also know that you and I both, when you say it was a terrible situation, you and I both know because we've both been involved in this work and have heard the stories. And so is can you give a snapshot of what terrible means? Uh, I'll give you a composite sort of picture that That's is, yeah. if anything, sort of understated, right, of yeah. what, what happens. So um, a girl, uh, this is just in a traffic situation, so she, she really believes that there might be a way out for her. She's in a very difficult situation. Her family's in, in uh, quite difficult financial uh, space, and she's told there's a job in the neighboring city, right? And that seems plausible. And lots of people in lots of places in the world go from one place to another mm -hmm. place in order to get work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and even take risks to do that, right? Because the, the sort of difficulty of the situation that they're in, uh, in terms of not having enough food on the table, makes them willing to take risks. So this girl, she's, she's 12 year old. She goes with somebody that her family trusts, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and on the way... She doesn't understand, but like a series of things begin to cause her some level of concern. But imagine you're 12 years old, right? So mm -hmm. concern for you and the, your experience. You've never left your village. You don't know what a city's about, but you're, but okay. It's, it's very possible. disorienting the whole. So some money seems to exchange at the border and another person is now involved and the woman in your village says goodbye and says, this other woman's going to take you where you need to go and you get brought somewhere. And then the first sign of trouble is that somebody tells you to go take a bath. Now, bath, right? And so now you have no idea, but it just seems bad. And then the thing that really seals it for you is that you're told to go put on makeup. But in your culture, nobody wears makeup unless you're doing something bad. And that you know. But now you're in a situation where you're trying to explain respectfully to someone who's older than you. I think there's been a misunderstanding. Um, I'm not supposed to be here. I, I was looking for a job in a noodle shop. I was told there was a job I could earn for the summer and then come back after school break. That, that's, that, that's why I'm here. At this, you're completely shut down. So maybe you don't know the language and it's just purely confusing. Or maybe the lady just flat out tells you, I paid a lot of money for you and you are going to do what I say until you earn the money to be free. It's not my problem mm -hmm. that you don't want to do this. I was told that this is what you'd come to do, and I just paid a lot of money for you. So um, then there's a bunch of different scenarios, right? So the child resists, and she's locked in a room, and she's beaten, and she's given no food, and it takes about four or five days until she, she believes, and you could credit her with some... Uh, right thinking in her belief that there's nothing else that she can do. So 
then at, by this time, the brothel keeper has been soliciting customers, right? And so somebody's going to come and pay a lot of money because that girl's never been sold before. And I would posit because she's afraid and because she's in, she's at the height of her vulnerability. So somebody... That adds value in somebody's mind? As, as far as my experience uh, suggests, that does add value in some people's minds. So they will pay a lot of money in some places, 500 to $1,000 uh, to... Uh, to rape this terrified girl uh, over a series of hours. Um, maybe she's tied down. Uh, I've been involved in cases where uh, the girl's ma mouth was just wrapped around with uh, electrical tape so she would stop screaming. Um, but that's that's what I mean when I say it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible uh, because... Uh, the girls are beaten if they cry. They're beaten if they say they want to go home. Um, they're beaten if they say they miss their parents. They're beaten when they're sleepy. If a customer comes at 2 o'clock in the afternoon instead of the usual time at 10 o'clock at night, all the girls have to line up for selection. And if they're tired because they were up until 5, 6, 7 in the morning, then they're beaten for that. Um, they're, they are... Uh, some of them are given drugs. They're 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 um, in horrible. It doesn't matter. There are horrible medical situations. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's just no end to the sort of horror. And this yeah. is just trafficking. I don't know if you want to talk about other spaces. No, but yeah. So that's yeah. But that's the. I mean, that's what you mean when you say horrible conditions. I mean, and, and horrible that's a, conditions. That's a composite and not and all not conditions at all times to all girls. Right. But I. Uh, I am uh, a lawyer, as I said, by profession. I, I do not think it does the uh, understanding of the crime any service uh, to overstate it. So you will have to take my word for it that I am, when I say it's horrible, terrible, I give some description of it. It's still understating how terrifying it is for those children and how brutal it is, how physically damaging it is, how emotionally traumatic it is, how mentally destructive it is. It's difficult to overstate, at least in my experience and, uh, and my understanding from talking um, to our social workers. This seems like the right time to just take a moment. We will be back in a couple seconds with part two. Very hopeful part of the conversation. can you be hopeful even having seen that which is crushing? There are obviously sort of seasons and moments where the profound, um, where you just, I had a sense this last summer where you just had this, uh, where I was writing someone and I said, I just, um, I just was weeping again over this case that we had both been involved in. And I was like, because I'm just overwhelmed by the sense that evil won that it just won, you know, that actually uh, evil won. So I, I, it would not be, would not be truthful to say that I, um, I'm hopeful all the time. Um, 
or that I don't actually trend to dark. But I think, yes, sort of on the big picture, I am hopeful. And at least in part, because I have also been quite fortunate as to be able to either walk alongside or at least keep in touch with some of the um, survivors from the early years. And I know their stories and I know it has a different ending. And at the very least, I know, for example, if you take the case in Ghana from a few weeks ago, like Mm -hmm. that was the first day of just better days, not all of them all the time, but those children, that's a beginning of a different story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Up to that time, they were just instruments. They were, they were property of someone who just took everything from them and gave nothing no care, no love, nothing. Mm. And it just, so that the, the day where they were rescued, you know, that just begins a different story, you know, not a perfect story. None of our stories are perfect, but where there's like opportunity and hope and school and childhood and laughter in games and people who care about them and care for them and believe they have value and dignity and are, uh, and are worth something. And so I guess, those those glimpses also stay with you. What was the first time in your life like you saw something that wasn't as it should be and decided to do something? Like, I mean, even if it was, we had somebody share a story one time on the podcast that they were in like, I forget, it was like fourth grade, kid didn't have lunch, they gave him lunch and that was like the spark of, oh, hey, I can be personally responsible for helping. <laughs> you know, I can help. When I've talked to some of my colleagues in the office, uh, for, for a number of us, this has been true, that seeing someone bullied, seeing someone smaller or in a more vulnerable position being taken advantage of, so you see this in the schoolyard or, right. you know, right. it, from a very early age, like something burns in you that that's not right and that it actually, the bully's not a terribly brave person either, mm-hmm. right? And so I think I got a small sense then of... It doesn't take that much to stop that person from hurting this person, but it's more than that person has right now, right? All you need is someone to stand next to Susie and that person's no, the other person who's about to just take on her is not actually that brave anymore. And that's the thing you see in varying degrees. Uh, we see all over the world, right? The the widow in a property grabbing case, right? So, so the person who is stealing her stuff is doing it overwhelmingly because he can. Mm. There's just an absence of barriers in his way. And what we learned and what women in the community learn is it actually doesn't take that high a hurdle or that big a barrier to just make that less interesting, less possible, less appetizing to a bully, right? And so even three widows standing up together sometimes can stop somebody from taking her stuff or the community says, oh no, it actually, that's hers, You know, and in fact, after a while, like it turns out you just can't take stuff from somebody who's weaker than you are just because you want it. Then it's no longer free stuff. So, you know, some of the stuff is actually very complicated in a certain way, right? Because public justice systems are are intricate and statutorily and regulatory based and all that. But like some of it's very uncomplicated. You know, it's like bigger person thinks they can take from smaller person because power's on their side. But actually, it's not dramatically so much power. Mm-hmm. It's just more than the other person has, yeah. right? And the evening out of that is not is not as hard sometimes as it looks. I think mm-hmm. that's a that's that's an interesting point that you make because the 
epicness of what it appears you do. Like sometimes feels, I think, can feel unattainable to people. Like, okay, I would have, you know, reading your bio, you went to impressive schools, impressive. I mean, it was, it was cool, right? I know you love talking about yourself, but like you have this whole story and now you're doing this just epic work and there's folklore stories about it. Some of it is halfway true and not true. And I, I think that like if someone is 19 and hearing you talk, may think, well, that is unattainable for me to do anything now unless I do these these equally epic things over the next 20 years, and then I could start to be helpful. What would you say to that person? Okay, so <laughs> I, I would say a couple things. One is, like, you know, because uh, you read bios see- with some skepticism yeah. uh, in general and sort of dial it down some... some there. I mean, I do have heroes, so I wouldn't say I don't uh, right. I don't believe what I read, but I would say, you know, some healthy skepticism. Um, in an age of ego, maybe. But um, what I w- what I would say is, uh, and again, so you look at another. So from Mother Teresa, taking your lessons from Mother Teresa is right. never a bad idea. But I also, you would say possibly not replicable, right? <laughs> um, but still, she made some line in a documentary that was done about. But Father, if I'd never picked up the first one, we never would have picked up what whatever was yeah. at that time. You know, the seventeen thousand. Folks that they had uh, cared for, and I do think that um, what I do, it's possible to be overwhelmed, and it's it's also possible to just use that as an excuse for not doing anything. So I think both of those things are true. But if you were setting out to do something, like the first things you do to set out to do it is actually do the first thing, right? So that is, if you really want to. Uh, you know, pursue justice in the law. Well, you know study, like do your next class and, and work at it and do the next thing and do, you know, and, and try to, to find the mentors who will help you or take your footsteps in the legal spaces that need to be in order to get you in that space. Right. It doesn't generally just come upon you. You do have to, you have some agency in that. But the, but the other thing is, I think, uh, it doesn't just do the next right thing. Right. So what I am always, uh, amazed at and humbled by so many people that I know is the sort of people they take into their lives, take into their house. I think of just, for example, care for the refugee community or um, just the volunteering that people do, the service they do and love all the time, which I, I, I will say sort of far exceeds what I ever did. Like, I think there are steps you can take to show love in whatever space you're in. And then I do think it's some trust that those that opportunities will come if that's actually what you want, like both you pursue it and believe like that there'll be spaces made for you to, um, to try and to, um, pursue, uh, sort of what your passion is. Like, what do you have passion in and then develop the expertise in that thing if you can, and then work really hard at it and offer in those spaces where it's not actually your job, but you'd like to try it out and sort of take, Step by step, when I meet 19-year-olds, I am in all of them. Because I will say at 19, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no landscape. I had no North Star. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah. So when I hear how these people are setting up their sort of resumes and strategies in life, one, I mean, sort of good luck, you know, because life doesn't right. normally, you know, it doesn't always turn out precisely that way that you schedule it. But two, like good on you yeah. like for having a plan. At 18, I was wanting to drop out of school. I was near to dropping out. I sort of took a train to nowhere and then ultimately found my way back. Um, And I had no idea uh, what to do. At 
21, when I graduated school, I had no job and no idea uh, what I wanted to do, but I needed to do something. Mm. And I was really, really uh, fortunate to get a great job at uh, at the Justice Department. It was a bit of a, a last minute. I almost took a job at the Energy Department doing oil rebates to major, yeah. re- I mean, something less interesting for me, <laughs> as it turned out. Uh, you know, so like I just, I would encourage folks who are thinking that way that you're way ahead of any any space I was in terms of having a sense of where I wanted to go. Mm. Um, and so it's in the sense you can be more and uh, sort of worry less. I'm not discouraging planning, but I think there are a sense of like be in the space that you're in and love well in that space until you get to the next sort of space, right? Because um, I think there's a ton of anxiety now about how am I going to get to where I want to go? And to the extent you can diffuse that a little bit and just be where you are, um, I think you probably serve yourself and the people around you. The next question that I asked Sharon was very simply, do you think we will actually be able to end slavery in our lifetime? Do you actually think that this is going to happen? And she said, with total clarity and conviction and intelligence, absolutely. If you would like to learn about the work of IJM, if you would like to learn more about Sharon, go to IJM.org. To that end, As I said at the beginning of the show, if you would take 10 seconds of your day, and I'm not being condescending, I know you're very busy. It would be helpful, though, if you would take 10 seconds and go to newactivistis slash IJM, newactivistis, IJM, and fill out that form. That form will generate a letter, and that letter will, in short, ask your elected officials to fund some very, very important work that will go a long way towards ending slavery. As always, our deepest gratitude to the Brilliance for allowing us to use their music in the production of this show. You can listen to more of their music at thebrilliancemusic.com. If you happen to be on social media, and I guess who isn't, you can find us both Facebook and Twitter. Both of those are new activist is. Would love to chat and hear your thoughts about this episode. And also we share links throughout the week of things that maybe we talked about on the show. So check us out there. And with that, we go back into the world on behalf of Sharon Kohn Wu, the relevant podcast network, and all of my colleagues at International Justice Mission. I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. into the face of my enemy I see my brother I see my brother Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more Relevant Podcast Network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.